Welcome back to another episode of Size Eyes in the Casually Profound series. Today I'm sitting here in beautiful land of a thousand hills coffee with Lori McDonald. I'm super excited to chat with you today, Lori. Um, been waiting for a while for this, um, and I'm grateful for Leveda for introducing us. Absolutely. Um, so excited to dig in. Um, one of the first things that I like to do when I'm starting off is a uh, gratitude exercise. Wonderful. Um, so I'll, I'll go first. It'll give you some time to think as well. Okay. Um, so something that I've been grateful for the last, I guess that comes to mind, is being able to learn from a wide variety of people. Mm-hmm. Gratitude for seeing how people live their lives, what ideas I can get from people, how to implement them in my own lives. It's like, oh, this artist, there's something that I can take. This, this business person that I can learn something from. Right. Uh, my manager, I can learn something from. The person that I manage, I can learn something from. Right. It's um, the barista, I can learn something from. Right. right. In, in a quick interaction. Right. Um, whatever it is. So I, I just really cherish and, and I'm grateful for all the opportunities and potential for learning out there. And it's just up to us if we have that awareness. So I'm re- really grateful for that. I love that <laughs> because it's, it's just so true. Everybody has their gifts and their talents. And uh, it's such a collaborative environment now where we all help each other. And that's really a great part of it. Um, similarly, I, I have... I'm grateful for the stretching that I've gone through over the past year uh, where I've had to learn new, new technologies, I've had to learn you know, new skill sets uh, to keep up with coaching people and taking them to the next level. And at first it's always a little bit challenging, but when I step up to the plate and get it done, then once you learn it, you've learned it. Yeah. So I'm just grateful for all the technology and all of the learning that I can do from people as well as online to continue to expand my skill set uh, as the needs continue to grow in the business community. That's amazing. Love that. Um, yeah, so with that attitude of gratitude, I... I like doing a quick visualization exercise. Okay. Um, so we can like to close my eyes during this, up to you. And anyone else listening can follow along as well. So we close our eyes and relax deeper into our body, into ourselves, feeling completely grounded. Relaxing our breath, deepening our breath. And feeling physically relaxed from the top of our head to our shoulders, to our arms, our chest, hips, legs, and toes, all the way from the top of our head to the tips of our toes. And from the state of relaxation, 
let's imagine having left this conversation inspired, motivated, re-energized, rejuvenated because of all the ideas that were shared, the insights that were had, the connection that was created. And thinking back, this was truly a casually profound conversation. We'll just soak in that for a quick moment. our senses and come back to the present moment. <laughs> the first question I want to ask, Lori, is who do others think Lori McDonald is? Well, that's a great one to start off with. It really <laughs> makes me think. Um, I guess I'm viewed differently from different people that I'm associated with, from business people to artists to healers, energy workers, yoga uh, teachers. And I think I'm considered uh, a person that is spiritual um, calm, thoughtful, skilled, and I would say the last thing would be intuitive. Uh, because when I look at a business or I'm working with a person, there's always something that emerges that gives me a clue as to what questions to ask. And when I do that, the answers that come from that really propel the continuation of the discussion to solutions and answers. And I think that's just really, really fun. Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Yeah, uh, there's, a, there's a lots of different routes <laughs> yeah. that we can take it. Lots of different people that look at me from different perspectives and different yeah. skill sets, and and they're all great. I'm curious about the the spiritual, intuitive side to start off with. How would you say that you that journey has been? Of like, if you feel like you're intuitive, or others, you may you may say that others feel like you're intuitive. How would you say you've gotten to that point, that you would describe yourself as that? You know, it's a great question. I have to say that it's really been a lifetime journey um, from when I was a kid. But over the last uh, 15 years here in Charlotte, even when I was running my architectural firm, I would see things in 
the architectural design or the engineering that just would come to me. I was a really good designer, and it was because I had just an eye for proportion and scale and detail. And, and sometimes I would say to myself, you know, where do I, where do I get this from? And I think it was mostly intuitive. It was just a feeling of how it should look and how it um, would best represent what the architecture wanted to be. And, um, and then similar with the clients, uh, just when I did really, really big projects, which many of them were uh, interpreting, reading between the lines when they tell you what they want and they don't know how to articulate it from an architectural perspective, because it's a, it's a very sociological bit, uh, business, architecture, because you're really dealing with how people live. You're creating an environment for how people live. And so that's what you have to understand. And sometimes it's more intuitive than it is uh, actual factual. So, um, And then when I came to Charlotte, I started a meditation practice, um, energy work yoga, um, a lot of exercise, a lot of... Uh, reading, studying, and my meditation has just evolved so that like you did the relaxation exercise, it becomes a way of life. And because once you have that feeling that you're connected to the universe, that's what drives you from there on out, don't you think? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> like that click once you get that click you never go back <laughs> yeah would, would you say you found that so you're would you would you characterize that as like a this this methodical journey or this you know this progression over time or was there any key inflection points along the way that helped supercharge um, that journey yeah there's been a lot of key re reflection points and that is things happen life happens you know i went through a divorce i went through some uh great recession issues with lots of real estate and um, so you go through traumatic situations and you've got to dig deep and you've got to find uh, find the peace with it and find the resolution so it's part of it is the spiritual intuitive you know working with it and then you have to translate that into some concrete actions so that you right. can really figure out how, to, how are we going to handle this. So I think it's the, the intuitive and the um, spiritual that drives my, um, my connection, drives my inspiration, drives my intuition to feel what's right. And when you know it, you know it, and then you take the action. That makes sense. Yeah. What about working and leading the architectural firm? How did you f find that? Like, did it translate to other people also having it? Because I know one of the things that you um, uh, or you know, pride yourself on, from what I saw online, is like the the, the employees that you, that you work with are you know stick around for a while, right? Um, yeah. So I guess how, how was there any correlation or some sort of connection between 
how, like how your intuitive mind, the intuitive sense of what, what you just described, and that piece of employee retention, how was, was there any connection or am I just trying to connect dots that aren't there? <laughs> no, no, there's, there's definitely an intuitive connection. Um, very passionate about where our business culture is today because the things that, that really drove my business was the intu intuitive ability to see when someone was struggling with something and to reach out to them and to work with them or if they were frustrated. Uh, and I think it was just driven by my normal sense of love for people. These people are so talented and so gifted and they're building my firm with me. It's, I'm not up here and they're down here. We're all building it together for the benefit of everybody. So I met with every employee once a month for 15 or 20 minutes to say, you spend so much time contributing to the benefit of the firm, what can I do for you? And I helped people buy investment real estate. I helped them get married. I helped them through divorces. I helped them with, I helped people set up their own architectural firms, their own interior design firms. So whatever it was, um, and one, my bookkeeper, who was amazing, came to me and she said, I really want to buy a two-family house, but I'm $20,000 short for the down payment. Can you help me? And I gave her a check for $20,000. And she now, you know, 15 years later, she's got some serious equity in her real estate. So uh, that makes me real happy. Yeah. Real happy. That's amazing to see. Say again? That's amazing to see. The, it's well. It, from from my side, it's like, hey, this here are all the people that, um, first off, that you're connecting with the, for those 15, 20 minutes, and they feel comfortable enough to share that. So I think it's not just, um, well, I think just having that 15 to 20 minutes allows them the space to to be open. Would you? Right. Would you say that that allowed them the space oh, yeah. to do that? Oh, definitely. They, they would tell me, I would say, you know, are there any problems, things you want to complain about or whatever else. So it was an environment where um, I gave people responsibility as they were ready for it, but they always had the opportunity to take on more responsibility. And once they got the responsibility, I empowered them to, to use it. Did they make mistakes? All the time. But if they came to me with a mistake, which in architecture can be a big one, uh, but we didn't do a lot of crisis management because we had such a wonderful system of, of production. But if they came to me with a mistake, I would always say, what would you do differently? And how do you resolve where you are on this? So again, just empowering them to become leaders themselves. I had a mentoring system where everybody had a mentor because in the architectural field, there's just, if you don't show people how to do it, they're not going to get it right. But once you've showed them how to do it and you support them through it, then guess what? Not only do they not make mistakes, but then they, their confidence soars and then they become leaders. So that's how I stratified a whole middle management is by building leaders. And then they took on more you know, men mentees, and they could make more money because they could run more projects. So people grew in the firm real fast in salary and in responsibility. And so they felt like a really important part of it. And as a result of that, my retention rate was like 90%. <sighs>
over more than two decades. So, and they're still there. They bought the firm from me, and they're still there. They have two locations now, and they're doing really well. Wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a blessing. <laughs> it's a blessing. Yeah. How many people did you have? Was it, did you say weekly or monthly? You would have those 15 to 20 minute conversations with like every employee? With every employee, yeah. More often than not, it stayed around 25 to 30 people. And, um, and yeah, that's a pretty scary weekly payroll. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, mean, I was just digging into that because it's, I feel like outside looking in, that's probably one of the most, would you say that's one of the most important things that you did as a business owner, having those touch bases with the employees? It's, it's really communication, the all, all of the communication. Um, one of the things I think was resulted in the sale of the firm was the systems that I built. So I could go in and the um, client file, which was usually about this thick, I could go in at any time on a Saturday or a Sunday when a client needed something and I could read through their client file like a history book. Every conversation, every meeting, every you know on-site with the contractor meeting was documented in great detail. So it was like reading so I could tell anything and everything that was going on at any time. And the, the uh, clients always signed off on the minutes of the meeting. So. That saved my butt a whole bunch of times when somebody said, I had a, a celebrity, I worked for celebrities, I had a celebrity whose husband was a little bit ornery, and he said to me one time, he called me up, we did a huge, huge renovation. He said, you know, I'm not really liking my windows. And I said, okay, what's it, you know, what is it that you don't like about them? Well, you know, I don't like the way they look and the way they operate and this and that and the other. And I said, Okay, well, let me do a little research and I'll get back to you. So I went into the file and on such and such a date, myself, the project manager, took a full-size, these were all custom-made windows, um, took a full-size custom-made mahogany window to the site with us, to his house, to meet with him so that he could operate it and feel it and see it. And then we went through every single window on the drawings and he signed it off, you know, completed, et cetera, et cetera. So all I had to do was send him a copy of the minutes of that meeting and I never heard, heard from him again. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're talking about $350,000 worth of windows. Uh, that could be, yeah, that could be a big claim. I never used my uh, Arizona Mission's insurance once in 25 years. Mm because of the proactive. And so people knew exactly what they had to do. And everybody did it the same way. So those systems were invaluable in terms of consistency, in terms of uh, just the staff knew how to run the company. And they knew how to teach other people to run the company. And so that was really how I was able to sell it. Mm. Because it had the systems, it had the... Um, lead generation and it had the operations makes sense to, to run the business I think 
I remember, I think you said when we had initially chatted um, previously to one of the reasons that helped you succeed was hiring before you needed it. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you can expand on, on that and how that played out, examples of it um, in your career. It's a really important point that's not so obvious, but when people start to expand their business, like you, when you're a coach and you see people's business expanding, you know, one of the first things that they do is I need a, you know, a secretary or I need a, this person or that person. So they'll hire that person when they need them and throw them into the mix and say, here's your job, do it. Uh, I always said that I was always looking for people, and I always said, don't hire them when you need them, hire them when you find them. So I was always looking for people. I remember one particular guy that I hired because he had a, a expertise in commercial construction, and I had nothing for him to do when he first came in. But I knew that there was a project coming down the pike. So the short of it is that it gave him time to acclimate, gave him time to get to know people, it gave, it gave him time to use our systems, um, set up his computer, and then when the job came in, he was ready to go. Um, but he was the right person, not only from a skill point of view, from a culture point of view. So those types of employees stay for a long time. But if you hire somebody that is not the right fit or doesn't have the right skill set, then costs a lot of money. You train them and uh, they don't stick around. So that's a really key point when you're growing a business is don't hire people in a hurry because you absolutely need them and then hire the wrong person. Because in the long run that's going to cost you more money than, than if you had waited. What sorts of things, so how did you know or how did your team know when you came across those people? It's like, oh, this person, we don't need them right now, but we found them and we want them, right? What were those like signs? What were those things that you um, We had, had? Um, every Monday morning, we had a total office meeting and um, we talked about, we had lists and, and graphs and everything of every project where it was, the progress of it, et cetera, et cetera. So we talked about capacity a lot. We talked about what do we need, who do we need, um, what skills would be beneficial to the mix of what we have, would allow us to take on other types of work. And everybody, I learned so much <laughs> from, <laughs> from the whole staff. Uh, and it was a I can't think of a better way to learn what your company needs than to sit down and talk to the people that are in the front lines that are run, running the company. So that's how we kind of knew what to look for. And um, we always had, at that time, we always had an ad. Or we had, actually, we had an agency um, that ran ads. But we had, uh, we, we interviewed people quite regularly. So it was great. Got it. Yeah, one of the things that I've, seen or I read in uh, the first 90 days the book Michael Watkins I want to say mm -hmm. um, was the, the concept of like the, the sink or swim I guess it's not a maybe not original concept by him but 
in the workplace, I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, it's because I feel like for the startup that I work at, it is a, a sink or swim unintentionally. Um, no malicious intent for it, but it's just naturally ended mm -hmm. up that way as mm -hmm. a sink or swim type of philosophy where it rises up to the level of the person um, or like if you're a good employee or you know if you're a talented individual mm -hmm. in that seat in an organization then you will rise to that occasion then you will do the job well but if you're not a good fit for that position then you know it's it's not going to be as as smooth sailing right so mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a sink or swim philosophy and I, I would you say like those systems and would these like all company meetings or these 15 to 20 minute conversations um, hiring them before you need them I feel like those are all and the systems you put in place I feel like those are all outside looking in contributing factors to it not being a sink or swim um, mm -hmm. uh, organiza like organization and firm because I, I guess that's what I'm experiencing right now it's like, yeah. hey, w yeah. as we're starting to scale, um, we have to put more systems and processes into place. And it has historically been that way. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, would, would you characterize um, your, I guess, background as like the organization as any like sink or swim uh, You know, like, it's a great question because I was reading something recently about architectural firms saying that they don't have the budget or the capacity to individually train incoming architects. Um, and I thought that was so interesting because if any industry needs it, it's the construction industry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that there's, sink or swim to me is throw somebody into a situation where they're not gonna be successful unless they're someone like you that really understands what you're doing and you know can be your own entrepreneur so you can bring that to the table and you can make suggestions and almost create your job role but if you throw somebody into something uh, and they're not trained and they don't know what to do it really hurts their uh, confidence and it hurts their capability and it doesn't really help the firm so I would say that I overinvested in the people, um, but what I consider a sustainable and you know long-term profitable firm is based on that sort of consistency. When you're dealing with really complex pro projects and really high-end clients, and they have expectations and you deliver consistently over and over and over. It wasn't me, it was the people in the firm that delivered consistently over and over and over, which is why before I sold the firm, we had just a natural flow of high-end clients coming to us all the time. So I think it's, it's a matter of what do you want your company to be you know, do you want to make your money and get in and get out? Then sink or swim is probably the cheapest way to go about it. And, you know, if somebody can't do it, they're out. Um, and then you 
sell it or you take your money and run with it. But if you want to make a firm that's sustainable and that's making a contribution not only to your industry but to all of the people that work for you, then I think there has to be some structure and some system where you develop your employees. You know, you bring out the best in them, not only professionally, but personally. You know, it's a, it's a journey of personal development as much as one of professional development. And that's what I consider sustainable. There's not too many businesses that have been around for 40 years. And um, so I'm pretty proud to say that that's my legacy. That's, uh, that's great to see. Yeah. Um, and it's kudos to you and the entire team that you've Thanks. Um, Thanks and much. built up. Um, Taking a, a left turn here, you mentioned, I think, in your first answer about healers as, um, as people you've interacted with or you would consider yourself a healer or? Um, I, I would say yes. Um, I'm not a practicing healer that does, you know, Reiki work for other people. I do it for myself. I am trained in Reiki um, and sometimes my family. But uh, I'm associated with a lot of a lot of people that are in the healing, the holistic healing business, mm -hmm. as well as the um, what would you call it? The <laughs> ethereal healing business now. Um, mindfulness or yeah, mindfulness, like, um, like mindset. Health? Okay. Uh, that sort of thing. Okay. And um, it, it, to me, it's the best medicine that you can possibly take is to keep you healthy, to boost your immune system. It has to do with the, your practices of meditation, your practices of Reiki, of yoga, and all those things, and understanding how to manage your emotions. You can manage your emotions. You really got the secret to life, you know. And uh, so I'm drawn to it. Uh, and as a result, I've, over, in the course of my journey, I've been drawn to a lot of people that have alternative healing. Um, whether it's, um, you know, uh, oils or whether it's um, plant stem cells or whether it's electronic. Uh, stimulation and things of that nature that are really effective so uh, so I use a lot of holistic type medicine I kind of you know parted from the traditional medical field a while ago not that I don't admire doctors we need doctors if I broke my arm you better believe I'm heading to the first doctor I can get to but you know, doctors do a lot, but there's there's so much now that's political about the medical field and the pharmaceutical companies, and it's uh, it's problematic, say <laughs> 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 the least. But yeah, you know, so I, I think that it's going to have to evolve because there's really a strong other side to it now that's bringing new technology to healing practice. Where would you like to see that? Where would I like to see it? Like, yeah, like going, going forward. You know, I'd really like to see um, medical professionals be empowered 
to teach people how to stay well. Absolutely, do doctors do a great job when people are sick and they help them and all sorts of things. Um, but I'd like to see doctors have more understanding of nutrition, of you know how emotions affect, affect your health. And um, I think they do. I don't think they use it a lot because of the strength and the power of the pharmaceutical industry, honestly. It's just a very, very powerful, and I think a lot of, most doctors get paid by the pharmaceutical industry to dispense their drugs. So it's kind of shoveling sand against the tide, you know? Something's really gotta change, and, and I don't know when or if it's gonna change anytime soon, but it's just, there's a lot of people like me that just say, I wanna know the cause of it, and I wanna to get to the root of it. I don't wanna just cover up the symptoms with some sort of drugs. Right. Are there any examples, um, whether in your life or people that you've worked with or seen, um, of examples of certain types of emotions being connected to certain types of health um, symptoms? Oh gosh, I think there's so many, um, you know, chronic worry, um, stress, trauma. There's a lot of people working now with um, release from trauma. Everybody has some trauma when they grow up. And then there's some people that have a lot of trauma or some serious trauma. And um, it impacts your sense of self really for a lifetime and a lot of the things that happen to you or that you've been taught and I think your sense of self is the driver for your thoughts, your emotions, your actions, your results and the more that you dive into your sense of self, what made it, what made it up, what are your belief systems, you know, what's you have a relationship with everything, right? So what's your relationship with your family? What's your relationship with your employer? What's your relationship with money? What's your relationship with um, health? You have a relationship with any, everything. And so you gotta dig a little bit and find out what your belief systems are. And when you come to learn what your relationship is with Money, for example, is a big one. Where did your belief systems come from? Um, you know, do you feel that you're worthy of, of being prosperous and uh, feel you're capable? And, and so when you dig into that and you really get to the root of it, you can start to rewire your belief systems and start to change them and change your relationship with them. And when you change your, your belief systems, you change your actions, you change your thoughts, you change your feelings, and you change your results. You know, it takes a lot of work, but uh, I've done it a lot. And um, a lot of friends of mine have done it. And uh, once you do the work, you recognize not only the relief, but you recognize the change in your sense of self, your belief systems, and the results that you get yeah. in your life. Yeah, or in business, it's very cool. 
How did you go about doing that work for yourself? If you had to walk through, now looking back, all right, here's maybe what I intentionally did or unintentionally did to help um, elicit those beliefs that may have been there to learn or unlearn. Right. How did you, looking back now, was there uh, a series of steps or process that helped get to where you are today? When you're in enough, enough pain um, about your relationship with something, you, I'm the kind of person that looks for answers. And I don't want to continue to feel this way. I don't want to continue to experience life this way. Uh, I want to feel differently. I want to do something differently. And so I reached out to people that I know. I've had uh, a lot of, I'm going to call it therapy. It's not traditional therapy. It's more, um, you know, energy work and uh, things of that nature. But what came out of it was just really some very uh, aha moments as to where my belief systems came from, why they were broken, and what I had to do to, uh, to change them. And when you put in the work, then things do change, your life changes. But I think a lot of people are in a lot of pain in their lives and they don't know what to do. Uh, so there's a lot of people they can reach out to, but I think it's just, it's becoming more common now. But uh, I have found that in my coaching work over the past two or three years, 25 to 30% of my coaching work has come in the form of mindset because people hit brick walls all the time. And I'm like, well, tell me why you feel that way about uh, getting in front of the camera. Or tell me why you feel that way about um, talking in front of a, a group or something. And when you dig a little deeper, you find out that they are terrified of putting themselves out there. And you work through it with them and you can progress, they can progress in their business. If they don't work through it, that's gonna always be something that holds them back. That doesn't mean that they can't be successful, but there's always gonna be something that's holding them back from really reaching the potential personally and professionally that they can. can. And when you see that unravel, and you see somebody get over that and they start to use those tools and those methodologies that they used to be terrified about and you watch what it does for them and for their business, their confidence in their business, wow, that's exciting. It's really exciting. So I found it's just, it's always been part of my work, but it's been more so a part of my work in the last two or three years because it, it comes up all the time. You know, what's, what's holding you back? And uh, that's why I love the one-on-one coaching. Mm. I love, yeah, I love it too. It's, yeah, it's all about mindset, all about yeah. mindset. Um, one thing I like to do on the, on the podcast here is uh, everyone, a lot of podcasts have like these rapid fire questions. I like to um, go the other way. And this proverbial ice bath, if you will. Um, and something that we don't do in conversations, which is just take some time to not do anything. 
I'm always thinking about what we're going to say or what question we're going to ask. Or, mm -hmm. But uh, next 30 seconds or so, one minute, whatever feels natural, we'll just do nothing, get a drink, you know, whatever. Um, and then at the end of that, I'd like for you to ask me a question. Okay. And we can keep the conversation going from there. Okay. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you take an ice bath daily? Not di no. Uh, I've, I've done a, I've done an actual ice bath once. I do cold showers most of the oh, most days. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's not fully the same. Yeah. Um, but still but some level of cold. Yeah. No. Cold stuff. Just, <laughs> yeah. You know, apparently your nervous system has a lot to do with your well-being, and the ice bath. For people that don't know, the ice bath resets your sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. which then puts you, you know, on track. Right. <laughs> so I do the cold shower thing also. I don't like it. <laughs> I, I like the results of it. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I like the effects. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody likes it. I yeah. heard Tony Robbins say, I don't like it, but I'm not going to negotiate with my, with my mind about it. There's no negotiations. This is the way it's going to happen. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's a, it's a non-negotiable. Yeah. yeah. It's non-negotiable. That's it. Yeah. So, but, yeah, we'll just kind of take 30 seconds or whatnot to uh, yeah. kind of um, space out, if you will. And, sure. And, uh, keep the conversation going after that. Anything that comes to mind that you'd like to ask? I would, yes. I'm never short on words, no, but I, for the short period of time that I've known you, Sai, I um, have a tremendous amount of respect for you and admiration for where you are in your life. And I can see that there's, you know, there's really unlimited potential in where you decide to take your career. So I wanted to ask you, um, it's, it takes a certain kind of person to be an entrepreneur. You have to be able to take risks. You have to have kind of an iron stomach. You have to have some thick skin and, um, and persistence and all that sort of thing. So I'd love to just learn a little bit about what made you become an entrepreneur what led up to that and, and how you made the decision that this is where the course you were going to take? Great question. Part of it is probably stumbling into it. So I worked, at, so after college, I, got, I found a job at a consulting firm and was it was a you know good first job experience, mm -hmm. and but I didn't find um, that much fulfillment in it, mm -hmm. especially nine months, one year in, where I was starting to look for other stuff. 
So at that point, I would not have characterized myself as anything close to an entrepreneur. Um, then I joined Tuyo Laundry, where I'm currently at right now full time. And I don't know if I would categorize myself as an entrepreneur there either. Um, even though, I guess when I joined the team, we were at maybe 30, 40 employees, and then COVID happened, and then there were about 10 to 15 employees. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, and then we're starting to regrow our team. We're back up to 30, 35 employees full time. Throughout that time, I guess I never thought of it as an entrepreneur. Um, I never would introduce myself as an entrepreneur. Um, maybe it's because like the analogy of a fish is born in the sea, fish lives in the sea, and fish dies in the sea. What does a fish not know? The sea, the water, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I was like, I'm surrounded by, maybe I'm surrounded by a bunch of people who will have that entrepreneurial spirit. So then I was like, yeah. And maybe I just, it just went over my head that I, oh, maybe I am an entrepreneur. Um, so I think, I think one part of that answer is like, I was surrounded by people who have that, that trait. Mm-hmm. One aspect is probably my brother, who has been a part of, uh, oh, <coughs> bless <Excuse> you, <laughs> um, who's been a part of a couple of startups, is a coach himself, self-employed entrepreneur, so, and he's in five years older, so, you know, mm -hmm. he is definitely a role model um, in that sense, so that's probably another contributing factor to it. Mm -hmm. And then maybe a third piece is, I heard somewhere from this guy named Alex Hermosi that there's a difference between wanting to be an entrepreneur and wanting to be self-employed. Mm -hmm. I think I'm at a stage right now where I want to be self-employed rather than an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. I would like more of the lifestyle that a self-employed person has rather than the responsibility or the vision of growing something so massive, or maybe not even that, but like um, of growing something that they would want to hire and build a team. So I don't know if it's, maybe it's, so I think the difference between that entrepreneur and self-employed is what lifestyle they want. Maybe that's one aspect of it. Um, I'm not fully sure on trying to figure out the answer for myself, but at this stage, as I'm building up my coaching business, I do want to be more self-employed. I want to have more of a, a life balance. Mm -hmm. I want to have, I want to be able to do things that I want to do, whether um, even if it's for less money than I'm making right now. I value the lifestyle and the time a little bit more than the the name on the resume right. or even the name of what we're building or the pride of seeing our stores built and seeing walking into it physically. There's a lot of joy and fulfillment that comes from that. Yeah. And there's a different type of feeling and fulfillment when I'm helping someone in a one-on-one -on -one coaching and I see that transformation take place. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, so a lot of different 
factors for the entrepreneurial right. self-employed uh, yeah. spirit of my past. Um, just being around and surrounded by those people at work, um, my brother, and just kind of you know stumbling into it and kind of figuring out the differences between self-employment and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Is, is there any difference or any, any thoughts on that, that specific like entrepreneurship, self-employment There's piece? a great book called The E-Myth Revisited. It talks about the stages of growth. And the first part is that you're the sole professional or you're you know, the sole mechanic or tradesman in your, in your business. And then you want to make more money. So you say, okay, I'm going to hire some people to do what I do. So then you not only remain being the solo practitioner, but now you're also a manager. So you're managing people and you're doing the work. As you start to uh, grow the business from there, there comes a point where you can't be doing the work anymore. There comes a point where you just, you're managing people. And the transition from being a manager to being an entrepreneur is the hardest transition that there is. Because when you become the entrepreneur, you have to have managers that you train that are taking care of the people in the front line that are providing the service. And if they're not doing it well, the number one thing that's going to take you down is when your customer service tanks, it's all over. So um, that transition is one of having to give up the control. And that's really, really hard for most people to do that because they're afraid and they don't believe anybody can do it as well as they do. And, but once you give up that control and everything is in place to maintain the quality, um, that's when the business takes off. Is that something that you experienced for yourself? Oh, yeah. That, that control, like letting go? The letting go was really hard. <laughs> it was really hard. But once I let go, then the operations took care of itself and I was kind of the rainmaker and you know driving the ship and that sort of thing and that's I think that's where so many small businesses are right now small to medium-sized businesses is that they don't have their operations systematized so while they should be the entrepreneur and they should be driving the growth of the business they can't because they're mired in the day-to-day operations. So that transition from being the manager to entrepreneur can only successfully and sustainably occur if your operations are running like a well-oiled machine. And if they're not, you're in trouble because you're gonna drop balls. You have to be able to have your finger on the pulse of the business at all times without micromanaging it. How did you get that perspective? Was it, was it some of the inner work? Was it um, other employees highlighting that sort of improvement? Was it, um, I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, hey, here, here's, here are the things that I did to help reach that stage where I can have those conversations with right. people and, and systemize those things. Was it an outside consultant coach that 
helped you? Oh, I you know? wish I had a coach. No, <laughs> no, I didn't. I would say the mentoring system was totally intuitive. I had no idea I was building a middle management from it. The talking to people was totally intuitive. I had no idea that I was, you know, helping people live a better life. Um, and the transition from manager to entrepreneur was, you know, how many how many brick walls I ran into. I said, oh, this isn't the right way. <laughs> this is. That's how I learned. Most of what I did was by figuring out what doesn't work and fixing it, setting up a system for it. And, uh, and sometimes multiple systems that had to talk to each other because we didn't have the software that we have today. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I hit a lot of brick walls. <laughs> and um, then you move to the next one, right? Yeah. That's it, one, one foot in front of each other. When I started, I started in the back corner of my bedroom with a drafting table. I had no intention of building a big architecture firm. I just liked to be self-employed. <laughs> so, um, you know, <clears throat> when you keep putting one foot in front of the other and you keep doing the right thing, things happen. You know, so. Are there any people that, whether like in your circle or um, content, books, videos, whatever, courses that has helped shape you're thinking now? I know like when we were talking earlier, like Mel Robbins was a name that came up, um, the, the E-Myth book, um, stuff like that. Um, I'll tell you, I, I, I have so, so much uh, knowledge that I've gained from reading, you know, doing webinars, workshops, and things of that nature. Um, I do have an online business coach now that I've had for a couple of years who's just brilliant when it comes to online marketing. Um, but I would say Brennan Burchard has been one of my um, favorite people. Of course, Tony Robbins has been around forever. Um, I would say, um, of course, Mel Robbins, and I'm sure there's other people. You know, it goes all the way back to Napoleon Hill, and you know, so I, I'd have to look at my library because I just have hundreds of books that have become my textbooks. They're so some of them don't even have the covers on them. They're so ratty, you know. They're all, but I go back to them and I look up things all the time. Mm. How do you? I mean, try backtracking a little bit. How do you um, practice your like? Like, what's your meditation practice like? Because um, you mentioned sometimes you'll you'll do two or three meditation sessions in in, yeah. uh, um, in a day, or you know, um, I guess because there's different types of meditation out there. What I, I do the one that that you did essentially, and that is that I. Um, I get up first thing in the morning, I get a cup of coffee, I sit down, I read inspiring literature, again, my textbooks, um, and then I do relaxation meditation where I start from my toes and go all the way to the top of my head, and then I also, you know, send a root down to the center of the earth to ground me, and I send a, you know, message up. And, um, and as I'm relaxing, 
your body takes on the um, the connectedness. Do you find that? I do. That your body, you know, tingles and just feels different, and you just feel a sense of peace and relaxation that you can't really put your finger on. But it's at that point where I know that um, I'm receptive to uh, whatever the universe has to tell me that day. You know? And some days we have a really great conversation. <laughs> and other days I don't get anything until, you know, later in the day or two days later. But uh, it just, that relaxation and that, it's sort of a trusting feeling. It's sort of a feeling of being imbued with love and um, being cared for no matter what happens, always being cared for. Um, being at one with universal consciousness, universal intelligence, um, and drawing upon that from within. So when people say we have no idea how powerful we are, well, the reason being is because we have an infinite source to draw from. and. We probably don't draw from much of it, but uh, that's kind of the way that I think of it, is that uh, we have an infinite source to draw from at all times of intelligence, love. Um, it's all there. Yeah. Yeah, I find when I, so I do Tai Chi, mm -hmm. um, and I find that when it's, when I'm really in flow, you can, I can feel the, uh, the chi, you know, flowing through, mm -hmm. through my hands, through my legs, through my through my body, right. and it almost sometimes feels like there is a root going down from from me down to earth, mm -hmm. and so yeah, I, I feel that sometimes when I'm meditating. So uh, traditional meditating, in terms of like sitting down and being still, as well as in some sort of movement type of right. meditation or Tai-Chi's flow. Wonderful. Um, it's that, it's the energy, you know, that's what energy work is essentially, is tapping into the energy of your body and using that energy to help other people with it. So once you've felt that energy running through your system, as you described with the Tai Chi, you recognize that we are essentially energy and that energy is... Uh, you know, takes on uh, whatever we're feeling at the time, you know, it changes. Yeah, and, and I think it's connected to what you said earlier about the um, healthcare system and our, the medicine where, you know, if we're, energy if we're energy and we have these energy centers, right, it's one of the most uh, ancient wisdom, right? What, call it chakras, energy centers, whatever, right? Sure. Um, but I think only now people are starting to understand, oh, it's like, if I adjust this, if I unlearn this wound, or if I heal this part of my body emotionally or spiritually, then I, physically I feel a little bit better, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then you see all these things about, like this miraculous healings, that, that take place and it's not scientifically proven but for me like I'm getting less and less um, 
needing anything to be scientifically proven. And if it's experientially proven for me, that's, then that's the only validation that I need. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I've just leaned more and more towards that side. And I think there's more and more people who are geared towards, okay, if, if it works, it works for me. I don't necessarily need that. Um, I think there's a balance between the logical brain and the emotional side. Um, but I, I think it's, it's cool to see the, the blending of, of both the Eastern and Western worlds, right. um, the scientific nature of the Western um, world and the modern technology, and then the ancient wisdom of, of the East and other yeah, um, which traditions. Which they've been doing for thousands of years. They've known that the body was made up of energy centers and acupuncture, and, and you know, Reiki has really been around for a long time. Um, I, I studied Joe Dispenza. Do you know Joe Dispenza? Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's pretty scientific about it um, in terms of what happens to particles. Did you ever see the experiment with the, the water? Feeding the water positive energy and feeding the water negative energy? I haven't seen that. I, I actually do that myself, though. Because it changes the molecular structure, right? It changes the molecular yeah, structure. Yeah, so, so I do that when it. I drink. Yeah. You can see. I don't know that, yeah. Yeah, you can see the molecular structure change based on the energy that's put into the water. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm, I'm sure that's been the water, the molecular structure of this water has been changing throughout this discussion. Yeah, it <laughs> has to have been. It's, we took it into meditation with us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but even like... Uh, I think a good example of that Eastern-Western combination is like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I, I thought it was original, it wasn't. Um, but I just, I made the connection of like the hierarchy of needs and the, the chakra system. Because they both have seven levels, right? And all of them are very closely connected, like the descriptions of each of them. Like the basic needs of the hierarchy of needs and like the, the root chakra. And then if you go keep going, going up, right. it's like very similar. And it's mm -hmm. like, you know, self-realization, self-actualization at the top and, right. you know, the, the, right. the, the crown chakra. So it's mm -hmm. like, it's very close. And it's like, I don't think it's a coincidence that there are seven levels on the hierarchy of needs and there's seven energy centers that we have in our body. So I think that's like a beautiful blending right. of, of East and West yeah, um, philosophies. Is. Yeah. So <laughs> I was just yeah. trying to connect the dots there. Yeah. No. Yeah. And you can look at the the level of vibration uh, also coincides with that, and um, that's why people use the singing bowls and things like that because of the level of vibration that it translates to. So yeah. It's really, really neat. Is there, as we wrap up here, is there anything that you'd like to share? Um, that we haven't touched on yet. You know, I just, I'm just in awe of your, your process for your casually profound podcast because that's what it is. It's just touching on things that are meaningful to you and meaningful to me and meaningful to many other people. And I think that's the greatest way to do a podcast. So kudos to you. Appreciate it. Thank you for the time, Lori. Is there a way for people to reach out to you that uh, if they want to work with you or just want to follow you, um, et cetera, what's the best way to get in touch? Um, I think you can go on LinkedIn and look up Lori McDonald, L-O-R-I-E, 
M-C-D-O-N-N-E-L-L. And um, that'll get you all your information that you can, what I do and, and how to contact me. Perfect. Well, appreciate the time. Um, this is an amazing conversation, casually yeah. profound, as you said. And thank you for, again. And we'll hopefully have more chats in the future. Thank you, Sean, <laughs> so much for the opportunity. Appreciate it.